0: Hello and welcome to the Narrative SI's Storytelling Podcast. My name is Alex Abnos. Uh, I'm here this week with our reporter, Lindsay Schnell. How's it going, Lindsay?
1: Hello, Alex. It's going well. How are you?
0: Doing okay. Uh, I have a couple questions for you. Okay, so college football is by far maybe my weakest sport in terms of knowledge. And I keep on hearing about this uh, this big uh, rivalry game that's coming up this week between Texas and Oklahoma. I mean, I think when you think about it, rivalries are a pretty crazy thing, right? Like they, it's, it, they can sometimes seem to- totally arbitrary. I remember just playing sports. There were some teams that we encountered, whether it's in high school or even just rec league or just one group of friends versus the other that you just really, really want to beat. Would you say that this is maybe the, the, the apex or near it of, of that kind of relationship?
1: Oh, yeah. Mac Brown, who obviously coached at Texas for a long time, was at one point an assistant under Barry Switzer at Oklahoma and said that when he got hired at Oklahoma, he asked Switzer, who do we have to beat to keep our jobs? And Switzer said, that's easy. Nebraska, who at that time was their big time conference opponent, and Texas. For a long time, Texas and Oklahoma were not in the same conference, so that added something else different. And then, of course, It's played at the Texas State Fair. It's played in Dallas at the Cotton Bowl, which is a middle point um, for both schools. So it gives it something different.
0: You've been hanging out at the Texas State Fair, haven't you?
1: (laughs) I have. I ate my first fried Snickers bar. I'm here to tell you it was delicious. All right. I turned down the deep fried red velvet Oreos, though, because that does not sound appealing to me in any way, shape or form.
0: Is, is Is fried butter a real thing? Is that an actual thing that they have?
1: Yes, but I haven't found it yet. I'm going back, though. I'm determined. I've heard it just tastes like a delicious roll.
0: <laughs> I, I feel like maybe it would taste like a, like a disgusting roll, but that's just, that's just my experience eating straight butter, which I've done before, weirdly. Um, <laughs> you have actually been in Dallas uh, for about the last day or so, and you've talked to a whole bunch of people about this rivalry. Uh, so we're going to get right down to it. This is the, the narrative. Again, my name is Alex Abnos, but I'm going to get out of the way. Uh, here's uh, Lindsay Chanel, our reporter, with uh, a little a little look at the state of the Texas-Oklahoma Red River rivalry.
1: Take a second and think about the one person or the one thing that you absolutely cannot stand. The guy or the girl who, when you see them, or even when you imagine seeing them, it makes your blood boil your heart starts to beat a little faster, and you can't really catch your breath because you're just so angry. Well, if you're from Texas, that person is probably from Oklahoma, and that thing is probably a Sooner. And if you're from Oklahoma, that person is definitely from Texas, and that thing is definitely a Longhorn. The pot bowl is sold out for one day only.
2: You feel you can actually feel your blood racing in your veins. That's how tough that game is. You gotta play that game today as play. You play that game all week prior to it.
3: Heroes were born in the Oklahoma game. Because so if you played great in that game you had a, a legacy regardless of what else you did in your career because you made your name in that game.
4: I remember coming back to the office and my phone rings and it's durable oil. He said, uh, well you may not believe it but I'm accusing Oklahoma of spying. On our football practices,
3: it's not like your home crowd or your away crowd, where it's loud for you and quiet for the opponent or whatever. At this game, somebody is screaming every
5: play.
6: I think it's a incomprehensible pressure that that I think those those coaches feel, and I, and I guarantee your players, we sure felt it.
7: Some redneck from Oklahoma, wearing red, stands up in the crowd and screams at the top of his lungs with one of these voices that you could hear for three or four sections.
8: Who are those two assholes with Switzer? It's like a carnival uh, on the ultimate steroid.
1: Sports, particularly college sports, are full of bitter rivalries. But only a few have a history that spans decades, with generations of fans and families affected by the final score. Florida, Georgia. North Carolina, Duke. Michigan, Ohio State. Army, Navy. Those are all important, of course. But none of those are played at the Texas State Fair, which gives the Red River Shootout a little something extra. And some would argue, makes it a little better.
6: Fried Snickers, fried Oreos, we have fried red velvet Oreos, those are limited edition, fried vanilla cake balls with chocolate glaze, and then we got chicken skins, fried chicken skins.
1: It's impossible to detail every game in this rich rivalry, or mention every player and every coach, but you can pick some highlights, and some lowlights, and explain the importance of this game, the weight of the rivalry, and how it means a lot, not just to players and coaches, but to fans too.
9: So I've always thought of it as a kaleidoscope. You see the colors, you see the sound, you hear the sounds, but you can also feel them. And you, you smell the smells from the hot dogs and the corny dogs. Everything around it has an aura about it that makes it so different.
1: This is Bill Little, a longtime Texas sports information director who is a walking encyclopedia of Texas football knowledge. He doesn't like the descriptor, historian, so I'll put it this way. If you have a question about the Longhorns, you call Bill Little.
9: But it's more than a game because it brings together all of those people on one afternoon, many of them for one single purpose, and another group for a totally different purpose. It was like two warring nations gathering in Dallas, Texas, 200 miles from Austin, 200 miles from Norman. And they met together on that one Saturday, and they fought their hearts out, and then they went away. It's an amazing
2: collection of Americana. I'll never forget the first time that we would get dressed in that cotton bowl locker room.
1: This is Dewey Selman, a former defensive star for the Sooners who played at OU from 1972 to 1975.
2: And you're walking down this tunnel, and all you see at the end of this tunnel was light. And at the end of it, you step onto the floor and you look around and you see all the people.
8: And here come the Sooners!
1: First, a brief history lesson. The Texas OU game, or OU-Texas game, depending on where you live, is more commonly known as the Red River Shootout. It originated in 1900, and except for a stretch in the 20s, has been played annually ever since then. Overall, Texas is leading the series with 61 wins, 44 losses, and five ties. Red River has been a sacred piece of college football for decades. In the
9: late 40s, after the war was over, America was looking for something to really get excited about. Those two schools in college football were two of the premier schools at at that point. And television began to come into our lives at that point. It might have been a 24-inch black and white TV set, but you could see the game and you could see a live game. And that was the thing, I think, more than anything that probably began to attract people. And then in the 50s, as television grew, so did Texas and Oklahoma and gave Oklahoma something to really be proud of.
1: Before you can fully understand this border battle though, you need to understand the states and the residents themselves. And that is pretty layered.
8: That's been scholarshiped quite a bit.
1: This is Barry Trammell, a Norman native who has worked at the Oklahoma newspaper since 1991. That creaking sound you hear in the background? That's Barry's porch swing. It was a picturesque Oklahoma day when we talked and he sat outside taking in the landscape is he gave me a little Oklahoma 101.
8: People have written books about that. The Dust Bowl hit, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kansas, Texas, New Mexico, You know, and, and the westward migration to California. All the people that went, didn't matter where you were from, you were called an Oki. If you were from Dumas, Texas, you were called an Oki. If you were from uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas, you were called an Okie. So Okie got a really negative connotation. Oklahoma self-image sort of took a major hit on that. Uh, the Grapes of Wrath, Steinbeck wrote it, and they made the movie with Henry Fonda.
6: I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too.
8: Anybody that reads it would know that the Oklahomans are actually portrayed as fairly, you know, valiant people. But they're also made to look poor and, and, and uneducated, which they were. In 1946, the re, regent at OU, Lloyd Noble was his name, uh, famously said in a regent's meeting, he pointed out, you know, we got we got an image problem in this state. He said, the war's over. We got all these guys coming back from the war. What if we went out and hired a coach with access to a lot of these football players who will be returning? What if he brought a bunch of them in and we got good in football? I'm totally unrelated it was Rodgers and Hammerstein. But at the same time, they wrote Oklahoma. Neither one of them had ever been to Oklahoma. You know, just it's a cool name so they could write a song about it.
4: Brand new state, to your
6: grand.
8: Gonna give you barley, carrots, and potatoes, pasture for the cattle, spinach, and tomatoes. And it was a runaway hit on Broadway, and everybody got all fired up about Oklahoma, and still do. I mean, you'll hear it ten times in the Cotton Bowl on Saturday. Lloyd Noble said, let's do this, and that's exactly what they did.
1: So OU hires Jim Tatum, who eventually gives way to Bud Wilkinson, and the Sooners start rolling. One of the stars for Oklahoma under Wilkinson? None other than Darrell Royal, a Hollis, Oklahoma native who played quarterback and defensive back for OU from 1946 to 1949.
10: Several of the wives would ride in a car to go down to the game, to the Cotton Bowl, and uh, that was a lot of fun. We wore our blue jeans on the way, and then we'd stop We'd stop at some filling station and go in and change into our red clothes, you know, our, our good clothes to go to so we could go to the game. That was a fun thing to do.
1: This is Royals' widow, Edith, now 90 years old, recalling her most vivid memory of the Red River shootout, a 34-14 Texas win in 1947, where irate Sooner fans let the officials have it.
10: Texas faces Oklahoma, and there's
4: little peace in Dallas. In a wild, rough game, Guillory of the Longhorn sweeps around left end for a touchdown.
10: There was a big hassle on the field, and they had to take a car onto the field to get the the referee off of the field because they were throwing Coke bottles at the referee. But they took a car out on the field to rescue that referee and drove him off the field. I had always gone down to meet Darrell on the field, and we would go off the field together. And I went down this time and he said, you shouldn't be out here on this field. And he took his helmet off and put it on my head. And we raced across to get out of the field. But so we wouldn't, so we couldn't get hit because they were still throwing Coke bottles. And that's the last time they ever
1: sold anything in bottles at the Cotton Bowl.
10: They take their football seriously in the Southwest.
1: Of course, most people know what comes next. Ten years later, Royal takes over as head coach at UT, and Edith switches her allegiance, trading out her crimson for burnt orange. Daryl Royal coached 20 seasons in Austin, where he remains one of the most beloved Longhorns of all time. He also coached in what is arguably the biggest and most important game of the rivalry, at least if you're a Texas fan, the 1963 showdown between number no. 2 Texas and number no. 1 Oklahoma.
9: Texas had been so close for so long.
1: Remember Bill Little, the Texas football guru? This is him again.
9: In uh, 1941, they made a good run at trying to win it. And you got to realize when you say 41, that sounds like years ago. And in that time, it was only 22 years before the 63 championship. In 61, they were so close to a national championship and wound up losing it to TCU in a game that they never should have lost late in the season. So the OU game in 63 became monumental. And to understand the game, it helps to understand the times because in that time, there was television. College football was bigger than pro football at the time. And every major writer from every major newspaper in the country, and that's in the day when there were major newspapers, everybody was there covering that game. Oklahoma came in with a lot of accolades, and everybody thought that OU was most likely going to win the football game. And then Texas came with a resounding upset. It was like a 28-7 to 7 game, but in those days, 28-7 to 7 would be like 56-14 to 14 today. It did flip the switch on. And the interest did turn toward Texas.
1: That win over Oklahoma in 63 catapulted Texas to its first ever national championship, which it claimed after the number one Longhorns beat number two Navy 28 to 6 in the Cotton Bowl. Fast forward eight years, and you've got another big time game in 1971. Oklahoma won that one 48 to 27. But in order to understand the significance of 71, You need the background of the schematic change that happened the year before, in 1970. I'll let Barry Switzer explain.
7: Well, we knew what they were doing. Right. Texas was the only one running the wishbone. We're having to defend them. And I'm an offensive coordinator. And I'm sitting in there looking at this film. And I told Chuck Fairbanks, Chuck, you're wanting to change offenses. This is what we need to do. He said, oh, no, we can't copy Texas Cup. Everybody copies anybody anyway. What the hell? Wish they're just because they're running the only one running the wish. No one means they got a patent on it. Hell no, let's run it. He didn't want to. He wanted to do what he wanted to, and I tried to convince him. But after, hey, when Chuck, Chuck bumper stickers came out in 1970, I went into Chuck. I said, Chuck, you see these bumper stickers, don't you? And he said, yeah. And I said, let me tell you, I see them too. And I said, if you get your ass fired, they're going to fire everybody. Let me tell you, we need to go to the wishbone. It's the only chance we got. And uh, th- thank God he listened to me, and we changed to the wishbone and uh, an open day before we played Texas. I saw that we had a chance to be a great be a football team that I, I knew
1: we could be. But that day in 1970, <laughs> OU was not a great team.
9: Wiley, he gets the fight. That's the gun, ending the ballgame. That's the end of today's football game with the score, Texas 41, Oklahoma 9.
1: The Sooners got thumped 41-9. Texas, then ranked number two in the country, would go on to win its second consecutive national championship. But in 71, the wishbone worked to perfection for the Sooners and Oklahoma won going away 48-27. It was the first in a five-game winning streak and their dominance extended beyond the Cotton Bowl as the Sooners claimed national championships in 74 and 75.
8: And Milton holds the ball high in the air as he shots off the field. He'll have to do some broken field running to get off the field, I think. Oklahoma beats Texas. Oh, how sweet it
1: is. Oklahoma's winning streak came to a halt, or at least a pause, in 1976, when J.C. Watts, the guy Switzer would later describe as his best quarterback of all time, was a freshman. J.C. couldn't wait to play in the biggest game of his life, until he got to the Cotton Bowl.
6: All freshmen, you know, you, you go in and into a program and, and all freshmen think they should be starting. And you come out of high school, there's Mr. It and Mr. Big Shot and all that stuff. And then you get humbled going to a program and finding yourself seven out of eight quarterbacks and... You work you work your way up to number three, and you think you should be playing when you really shouldn't be. And I remember, I was promoted to backup quarterback my freshman year because our starting quarterback was a guy named Dean Blevins. He got hurt, and uh, Thomas Lied our backup. He was a starter, and I was his backup. I remember <laughs> coming down that ramp, the OU Texas game, and, and and having been, you know, complaining, you know, in my mind and in my heart, complaining because I wasn't playing. And coming down that ramp that Saturday, my prayer was, dear God, don't let anything happen to Thomas Lott. I don't want to play today. <laughs> Because it was just, I mean, the building was everything that Coach Switzer had had said and and more. And I'm thinking, okay, this this is not the game that that, uh, maybe I was wrong for complaining all this time. Maybe I'm not so sure I want to play or not.
1: Of course, 76 was memorable for another reason, the original Spygate.
4: Well, you had to hate the Sooners. Uh, you were born in Texas hating the Sooners.
1: This is Kirk Bowles, a longtime reporter and columnist at the Austin American Statesman, a newspaper that makes its living off Longhorn football.
4: I was born in Taylor, Texas, which is uh, about 45 miles from here, along Michael Dixon Punt from here. My dad actually played football at UT. He wasn't a letterman, and he was just basically on the team a couple of years. and. He was a high school football star in Taylor, and uh, his name's Leon Bowles, and his nickname was Leaky, 'cause because he used to leak through the line. My first memory of OU was basically uh, going to the state fair as one of four boys. Uh, my mom and dad always went to the Texas-Oklahoma game, and they would just unleash the four of us boys on the state fair for about you know, five hours. So we were just wandering around the fairs. We used to ride that sky ride that went from one end of the fairgrounds to the other, trying to peek into the stadium to see if we could uh, get a glimpse of the score. Couldn't see hardly anything, but uh, it was the closest thing to being there. We would try to sneak in sometimes in the fourth quarter. Most of my memories of the Texas OU game was uh, Fletcher corny dogs and uh, all things edible. and. Uh, the cars, new cars, they tried trot out and that, those sort of things.
1: In 1976, Kirk was a 23-year-old reporter who had just been assigned the biggest beat at the paper, covering Texas football and legendary coach Daryl Royal.
4: Back then, you went to every football practice. You never missed a practice. And uh, I remember coming back to the office about 6 o'clock uh, on a Thursday, and my phone rings, and it's Daryl Royal. who who didn't make a habit of calling young cub reporters, trust me. And he said he had a story for me. I said, okay, I'm all ears. What's the story? He said, well, you may not believe it, but I'm accusing Oklahoma of spying on our football practices. We talked for about uh, an hour, and he told me that he had been tipped off to uh, a fellow by the name of Lonnie Williams at Rockwall, Texas, and said that uh, Lonnie Williams had been spying on Texas practices uh, disguised as a painter, uh, hiding in air conditioning ducts, and and all that sort of thing, and that Darryl wanted to go public with it. One of the ways we pinned it down was uh, we tracked down Larry Lacewell, who was Barry Switzer's uh, assistant coach. We were able to find out that from his wife that he was on a recruiting trip in Tulsa and staying at a Holiday Inn. And so we called the Holiday Inn and tried to find him, he wasn't there. We finally uh, put two and two together. Where else would a football coach be on a Thursday night? So we called the Holiday Inn back and asked for the bar. And we were able to find Larry Lacewell in the bar. And we had talked to the Holiday Inn operator and we, when we were trying to track down Larry Lacewell and said, we, we probably fudged a little bit. We said, well, we're trying to get together a group of people and uh, we're all trying to find Larry. And we wondered, has Lonnie Williams called? And they said, yes, he had called about five minutes earlier. So we knew they had a relationship. And we talked to Larry and he said basically that he was a friend of his but denied any accusations of spying. Daryl had also told us that uh, he would offer $10,000 to Barry Switzer's favorite charity if he would take and pass a lie detector, saying uh, he had no knowledge of Oklahoma spying on Texas football practices. And, of course, Barry Switzer never took him up on the offer. Uh, Larry Lacewell once said, make it $300,000 and you got a deal. Daryl, at, at, when he heard that quote, said, uh, well, I guess we know – we've established the price of what it's going to take to get them out of coaching. So that story ran the next morning, and uh, an AP reporter, grizzled veteran, he had gone over to talk to Darrell about our spying story. And uh, at the end of the interview, Darrell, who was an Oklahoma legend, who was an All-American quarterback and punter for the Sooners, and eventually ended up as a Texas head coach, Uh, made the comment offhand, thinking the interview was over, calling the Sooners a bunch of sorry bastards. And Robert Hurd, the reporter who's who's now since left us, uh, wrote that in his follow story, and that just set off a scene in the Cotton Bowl unlike any other I'd ever seen. And I'll never forget, Gerald Ford happened to be at that game.
1: This is Barry Switzer, the longtime OU coach who won three national championships, still boasts one of the highest winning percentages in college football and is regarded as one of the most authentic and eccentric characters in all of sports.
7: Daryl comes out of his locker room, I come out of my locker room, and we were to walk down with Gerald Ford but, uh, to coin flip. As we got down to the bottom of the ramp, neither one of us said a word or spoke to each other, but Gerald Ford's trying to figure out what in the hell's going on here. Neither one of us. Maybe these guys have already got the game faces on. This is the way coaches are before kickoff off a big game. Well, anyway, as we got down to the middle of the ramp, bottom of the ramp, and we started out in the field. Some redneck from Oklahoma wearing red stands up in the crowd and screams at the top of his lungs. It's one of these voices that you could hear for three or four sections. He stands up and yells, who are those two assholes with Switzer? And I'm telling you, the crowd starts laughing. And it's just, I felt like two inches tall. I'm embarrassed.
1: Of course, Switzer denies that his staff ever spied on Texas. Here's his explanation of what really happened in 1976.
7: Well, let me tell you exactly what happened in 1972. See, people don't understand this. When I defended my coaching staff in 1976 and said, my coaching staff never spied on Texas. Well, that was truth. I was telling the truth. It's semantics we're talking about here. Because when the spy incident happened, I wasn't the head coach. It happened in 72 when Chuck Fairbanks was the head coach and Lacewell was the defensive coordinator. And he had his buddy Lonnie Williams go watch practice. He went out there and watched them. And they said they're shifting to a quick kick. Sure enough, uh, I wasn't aware they were working on this. I wasn't aware Lonnie Williams had talked to Lacey at the time. But later on, we did because everybody laughed about it, started talking about it. And then Lonnie Williams kept running off the mouth and he was working down in Texas. And he told everybody, Well, the finally word got back to assistant coaches at Texas and got to Darrell. But it took a long time for Terrell to ever come out and accuse us of cheating and spying on him. Well, that spying incident happened in 72, it didn't happen in 76 when I was the head coach. So it was all semantics. I was telling the truth. It wasn't my staff. And when I did become head coach, I told everyone on my staff, you son of a bitch, I'll fire any one of you guys if you spy on Texas. We're not going to do that crap. We've got good players. We beat their ass without having to do that.
1: Unfortunately, Lonnie Williams has passed, so we couldn't get his take on the events of 76. But in the end, the cheating and spying and name-calling turned out to be all for nothing.
7: But we went out and had the coin flip, and we ended up a damn tie that day because, you know, we muffed a damn extra point.
1: Like most rivalries, the Red River Shootout has had its share of controversies, with arguably the biggest one coming in 1984. If you're a Sooner fan, you absolutely remember this game.
7: It was a downpour. It was a torrential downpour. And people, you couldn't hardly see, but Tony covered the fumble, the receiver uh, dropped the tough the ball screen, and, and he dropped it, and, uh, and hit and fumbled, and we were covered. Well, they didn't give it to us, all right? So we got a lineup, and they throw into the end zone, and Andre Johnson, our cornerback, reaches over the receiver and taps the ball out of his hands, which is a great defensive play, and... Keith Stansberry, our strong safety, catches it plainly, wraps it up, hits that wet turf, and slides three yards out of bounds. Just slides across the end zone, all the way across the end zone, inbounds in the end zone, all the way out.
11: And it is
9: incomplete. Let's see it again. Stanberry is going to catch the deflected ball. The both men go up and set the ball forward. Stanberry, if he has possession, one foot bounds, which he clearly
3: does.
7: Has both feet. And there's a guy named Butch Clark. I'll never forget the uh, official. Butch Clark standing there looking right at it and calls, lays it out of bounds. And it's clearly caught three yards inbound. Everybody in the stands could see it. And they know it. Texas knows it. You look at film of today, it's so obvious. How in the world do you call that out of bounds? And... Uh, so we would have taken the ball, put it on twenty-yard line and downed it, and the game had been over and I'd had another victory they over Texas.
9: Too bad for Oklahoma. Great for One for one from that
6: distance this year. The snap is high. The kick is up. It is good. And time runs out. And it's a 15-15 tie. Barry Switzer now talking to John McClinic there, and I'm sure Barry a little upset over the call in the corner of the end zone where it appeared
1: that Stansberry...
7: But it didn't happen, and we got screwed out of that one. And when you get screwed out of one, it really upsets you because uh, they're hard to win.
1: One person who never got robbed, though? Peter Gardier, the former Texas quarterback who went 4-0 against the Sooners. Third-generation Longhorn who played from 1989 to 92, Gardier is the only quarterback from either side to go undefeated against his Red River rival in the history of the series.
3: Well, of course, the the, the freshman year was my favorite. You know, um, scoring that last touchdown to Johnny Walker, and then also uh, 92 when beating him. And you know, they they expected to be a tight game, but we um, really pulled through and um, you know, kind of had the game in hand pretty much the whole time. And then at the end of the game, all the OU fans were saying, you know, graduate, graduate, because they had gone four years of watching us beat them. Um, so they were ready to see me go.
1: Like most rivalries, the Red River Shootout is often highly emotional.
12: And you got to ride the emotion, and I always tell them that, you know what we always have to think is momentum is always on our side because they're going to they're gonna catch a wave where they're going to ride it, and then we're going to catch a wave where we're going to ride it.
1: This is current Texas coach Charlie Strong talking to reporters on his weekly conference call.
12: And then it all settles down, and once everything settles down, then it's time to just lock in. But you're going to—it's going to be an emotional wave, and, and so we—it's you know going to be on both sides. So it, it's really big, especially in rivalry games.
1: But sometimes that emotion is heavier off the field on in 1998 legendary running back doak walker died in september from injuries sustained during a skiing accident a couple weeks later texas running back ricky williams who had grown close to walker changed his jersey number right before red river to honor walker it was an incredible sight especially in the house that doak built that's what they've often called the cotton bowl it was also Mac Brown's first game as Texas head coach.
3: And Ricky came to us, he had Doak's picture up above his locker, and we had a rule at that time, you couldn't have anything on your locker. But we gave him permission to put Doak's picture above his locker. And then we had to petition the NCAA to, to change, have a number change in mid-season, uh, and they allowed us to do that. And then the thing that I remember most about the game, there were two things that really stood out is ricky had a 37 yard run for a touchdown which was dope's number that he was wearing and at the end of the score he looked up and pointed to heaven and then in the dressing room after the game coach royal was in there and we brought the whole dope walker family in and uh, ricky and coach royal awarded them to the put the game ball and i think he even gave them the jersey now, that was pretty heavy
1: Of course, on the Oklahoma side of things, you remember a different Williams for a very different, very fun reason. Yeah, we're talking about Roy Williams and his Superman move in 2001.
8: There's the Blitz.
3: This time, Lehman shows blitz and falls off for the
5: freebie. Funny thing about that play, I didn't see it happen because I was watching our defensive end.
1: This is Bob Stoops, who's been the head coach at Oklahoma since 1999.
5: We were zone blitzing, and I, I had spent the time out or the time ahead of the play really trying to make sure that the D-end got underneath their Roy Williams because I knew they'd want to go to him. So when the ball snapped, all I'm watching is the DN to get underneath Roy Williams to get in position and then everyone goes crazy and I don't know what happened. So I'm, I'm running around asking everybody what happened and uh, but I did I did have a good feeling immediately in that I saw all our guys' excited so I, I figured something good happened for us.
1: Stoop says it's near impossible to pick a favorite Red River game, but if he were forced to choose, the second one he ever coached probably tops his list
5: just because I got here in 99 and we lost the first one pretty good game and then in 2000 we had such a big win and and we were playing so well you know and so I you know I probably picked that one and that that kind of jump started us and you know and then we went on to win the national championship that year
1: Texas had its own version of that in 2005 with Vince Young Here's Mac Brown again.
3: We played Ohio State who was really really good. They were a top 5 team in Columbus. And we beat Ohio State 25 to 22. But we had not beaten Oklahoma. We had a this, this, these guys did not beat them. We had a streak against them. So we knew that we couldn't start talking about anything else until we beat Oklahoma. And then the guys thumped up really well in the ball game. The game is so important and the media and the fans either build you up so much when you win that game and think you're for real, or they beat you down so much. I think that's why the game goes in streaks, because when you get beat in that game, the winner is reinforced to a very high level, and the losers are so criticized that they do feel pressure.
1: But it's not just pressure from fans and coaches and the media. It's within families, too, especially if you have a family member who played at Texas or OU, and you're carrying on their legacy.
2: On the farm... Did we uh, really have a big dislike for Texas? No, but the two years that Lucius had played for our try getting there we definitely wanted OU to win the football game.
1: This is Dewey Selman again. The Selman brothers, Dewey, Leroy, and older brother Lucius made up the best defensive line in the history of OU football. With the Selman on the roster, the Sooners were virtually unstoppable going 54-3-1, and one, earning four consecutive Big 8 titles, posting back-to-back undefeated seasons, and winning the 1974 and 75 national championships. During games, Oklahoma fans would hold up signs thanking Mrs. Selman, the brother's mom, for her contribution to OU football.
2: By just watching it, we started to become arrived and indoctrinated to the idea that OU is supposed to win the OU Texas rivalry, so that, that did become a part of our psyche.
12: Um, I remember, I
9: remember calling him after um, he beat OU.
1: This is Colt McCoy, the former Texas quarterback who went three and one against the Sooners in his time in Austin. Colt's younger brother, Case, quarterbacked the Longhorns from 2010 to 2013. Case got a front row seat to Colt's success against the Sooners. Wins that, even years later, Colt says he treasures. Forgive the background noise here. Colt's daughter, 15-month-old Sloan, wanted some attention from her daddy when he and I were chatting.
9: It's one of those things that until you do it or until you get to be a part of that game,
12: you uh, just don't, you don't appreciate it and and uh, it's a pretty special thing. Say hi. Hi.
9: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, there's so many memories. It's hard for me to pin down one, but I, just, I remember winning that game as a freshman and thinking like, man, this this is unbelievable. I'm so happy. I had, I had this sense of pride about Texas and about our school and, you know, really thinking, man, I get to play in this game three more times. I had that game circled, um, you know, as soon as the schedule came out.
1: Now, as a backup for the Washington Redskins, Colton, his Oklahoma alum teammates, usually make some friendly bets in the locker room come Red River Week. But it wasn't always like that for everyone who played in this rivalry.
12: I, um, I just can remember even playing in the NFL against, you know, guys who went to Oklahoma. And as we talked, we were teammates in the NFL.
1: This is Johnny Johnson a former All-American Texas defensive back who is best known for being the hero of the 77 Red River game.
12: I mean, we we as teammates, we, we talk about the game, and we talk about it in a sense where that week we, we almost, uh, as professional teammates, you almost have to sit in a different room that week. Uh, it's just so intense.
1: But Johnson really learned how intense this rivalry could get a couple years ago when his sons, Colin and Kirk, Started thinking about college football.
12: The thing I think I'll forever remember about my sons and the recruiting process, because they were heavily recruited, Uh, we had an academic uh, counselor meeting. Obviously, they were preparing for college and they had decided they were going to go to the same school. And the high school academic counselor, being from San Jose, California, who's a great guy, started mentioning some schools and he mentioned Oklahoma. And the boys looked at each other like, Are you kidding me? I'll never forget that look, and I realized, that oh, okay, they've got that. I think there's a little bit of UT in them just from, uh, just from growing up in the Johnson household, and just the mention of Oklahoma caused them to respond that way.
1: As you can tell, family ties go a long way in this rivalry, but sometimes even blood isn't enough. Consider the case of Adrian Peterson, one of the best running backs in the history of Oklahoma and in the modern era of college football across the country. Peterson, a Palestine, Texas native, had an uncle that played at UT. Peterson always figured he'd suit up for the Longhorns in college. Then, when he was a junior in high school, he had a very memorable conversation with Mac Brown. Uh,
11: My uncle, uh, Chris Smith, he played at the University of Texas, like in 97, 98, four years he played there. He played like Ricky Williams and all those guys. But uh, I was just such a big Texas fan. I'm talking about, like, right? everything was UT. Everything was UT. And um, I remember standing up top where the players come out of and uh, waiting for my uncle to come out. And I remember just looking back, just looking, at, looking out at the stadium and looking at the school board and just telling myself, dear, I'll be back here to play at the University of Texas. I remember speaking that into, you know, speaking those words. Once I got to my junior year, I became the number one player in the nation, like my junior and senior year. My first official offer was from University of Oklahoma. Then Texas A and M was my second offer, and then I want to say Texas came in and offered me. You know, so I'm still I'm feeling a little salty, but I'm still you know UT all the way in my mind. But I remember going up and sitting in the office and talking to Mack Brown, and I talk and I asked him the same thing that I asked all the other coaches that I met with. I was like, hey, coach, I grew up up here in Texas. You know, I grew up watching the Longhorns. My uncle played here. You know, I remember sitting out here and telling myself that, hey, one day I'll come here and play. So I just want to ask you one thing. So I come here, but I have the opportunity to compete for the starting position. Brown told me, well, Adrian, um, here's the thing. Cedric Benson is coming back for his senior year. So we're going to be loyal to him, and we're going to let him finish out since he's coming back. You know, once he's gone, then we uh, you know, open the doors and let you compete for it. So I said, okay. I remember leaving that meeting and I remember X in Texas off I like, I never imagined that happening. I often look back on that and say, you know what, what if he if we say, you know what? Yeah. You could have lied to me and I would have went to Texas, you know <laughs> I'm sure he, he thinks about it. He thought about it, I'm sure he did, especially after the first game right, with the 200, the Red River Shootout one with the 225 on.
1: All these years later, Peterson says he still thinks regularly about that conversation with Mac Brown. In a rivalry, he says, you don't forget slights, especially a rivalry as bitter and as historic as the Red River Shootout. This podcast would not have been possible without the help of numerous people many of whom have a much greater institutional knowledge of the Red River shootout than myself. I'm indebted to all of them. Thanks to Mike Brooks, an OU football junkie who gave me wonderful historical perspective. To the Oklahoma Historical Society, which hooked us up with archived audio. To Jake Trotter and Mike Hauk for getting me books that gave me background on the rivalry. Jan Phipps at the Texas State Fair for getting me in and making sure I didn't get lost. SI intern Ryan Fish helped with the very unglamorous task of transcription, for which I'm always grateful. Producer Alex Abnos is the only reason these narrative podcasts actually get made, and I'm especially grateful that, like me, he subscribes to hashtag TeamNosleep. And finally, he doesn't like to be called a historian, so instead I'll just say this Bill Little, you are my hero, and thanks to everyone for listening. Please make sure to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes and leave us a review.